Um, hi, everyone. Welcome to Disease X. Are we prepared for the next pandemic? Uh, my name is Sonia Salzman. I'm the coordinating producer of ABC's medical unit, and I am delighted to be joined by these co-panelists. Here we have Hamilton Bennett, who is the Senior Director of Vaccine Access and Partnerships at Moderna, among her many accolades. And we also have Dr. Matthew Hepburn, who is the Senior Advisor to the Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy for Pandemic Preparedness at the White House. Did I get that right? You did. Okay. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we really dive into the session, I would love to start with just a brief exercise by a show of hands, who in the room is in a leadership role at your organization or company? You guys should be raising your hand, I think. <laughs> um, okay, well, that's great to see. I'm glad that you are all here because although we sit here comfortably, mostly unmasked with seemingly the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic behind us, scientists nearly universally agree that the next pandemic is not a question of if, but a question of when. And so everyone in this room needs to be thinking about the next pandemic. Now, even within the last six months, we saw the outbreak of MPOX or monkeypox, which is still simmering. And within the last two weeks, um, an 11-year-old girl in Cambodia died of avian flu. And that outbreak has a lot of very smart people very deeply concerned. Now, the good news is that it's not all bad news. There are a lot of lessons learned during the pandemic. There are a lot of techniques. There's a lot of new technology that we can use to hopefully prevent the next pandemic. And that's exactly what we're gonna get into today. So, Matt, I'd love to start with you. Can we just define some terms? What is disease X? What does it mean? What personally keeps you up at night? And is it the zombie fungus from Last of Us? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I haven't seen Last of Us yet. Why? Because people will say, I'm like, I, I just don't want to cry. And everyone's like, you're going to cry. So, so, so I'm, not, I'm not there yet. But we were talking about, like, most of the sci fi movies, like, it, it's always a pandemic that's getting us. And so, and frankly, they're not wrong. Like, my entire career is, like, I've been in this space of pandemic preparedness and infectious diseases. Um, that can be really, really harmful. And I think these types of, first of all, thank you for the interest. Um, and uh, thank you for paying attention to this issue. We're going to talk a little bit more about kind of what it means to us and what it means to you, what it means to our society and our population. Um, it's, it's really, really hard to balance the conversation about this because it's a balance between there, we're going to continue to have these types of outbreaks, these types of things that are going to make lots of people sick. And we're going to have, and some of them are going to become really bad. And some of them are, are going to be as bad as COVID. And they could be worse than COVID. And that's a really, really sobering point. And a lot of people don't even want to say that. Um, our job, because uh, I'm employed by you as American taxpayers, is to say, okay, with that in mind, uh, what can we do about that? And most of this conversation, I'm offering that we keep it 
uh, with a, we always have to remember that, that we always have to take into account the personal tragedy that it poses. And we can't forget that. We can't forget how it affected all of us. We can't forget how it affected uh, a million as we died and that we have a lot of people suffering from long COVID. Um, so we can't forget that. Um, I do think it's helpful though to be uh, somewhat optimistic about the opportunities that technology will afford and then our ability to, if you will, take and embrace those technologies um, to really to transform how we get more ready for preventing the next pandemic. Because as we do that, we're also going to transform how we how we maintain a healthy population, how we work together as a global society, um, so that the transformation of pandemic awareness can actually transform our society as well. Mm-hmm. We're trying to end all of it, I hope so. <laughs> um, Hamilton, a, a different take on the same question. Uh, throughout my reporting on COVID, you know, we have seen a, a new variant, a scary new variant emerge roughly every six months. And um, Omicron was over a year ago. So what, what do you think is a greater threat? Is it the evolution of the virus that causes COVID-19 or is it something from left field that we're not expecting? I think we've gotten really good at responding to variants of SARS-CoV-2. Um, if we think about you know, this novel virus in early 2020, it took us 11 months to get that first vaccine out as, a, as an industry. The, the next variant version of the vaccine was eight months. And then after that, it was a few months. So I think these variants continue to emerge as we shift from this pandemic response into sort of an endemic world of just being exposed to coronaviruses all the time. I think this is a new normal. It will begin to look a lot like seasonal flu, we hope, is that you, you will have sufficient herd immunity from vaccination or natural infection. You'll have that kind of breath of immune response from all of these different exposures so that the severity of the variants becomes less and less clinically relevant to us, but they're still occurring. It just might look like a common cold. And we've spent the last three years figuring out what's the process we need to be faster, what's the process we need to put in place to be more responsive as as an industry, as a response community. So it's sort of a a well-oiled machine at this point. Uh, And we learned a lot from seasonal flu and how you respond to avian flus and pandemic flus as a result of this kind of ecosystem that you've put in place. So I think we've sort of reached it. I feel like I've reached a luxury where I do get to worry about the next novel diseases. I get to worry about the disease X and say, what can we learn from what we did in 2020? How do we do that better? And how do we make sure that it doesn't take us three years to get to this kind of sustained, uh, healthy response? Uh, and so Matt and I spend a lot of time talking about like what do we, what should we be doing now in this kind of peacetime to get ready for the next big pandemic, and how do you balance things like the outbreaks of avian influenza, mpox, Marburg, Ebola that are constantly happening in this kind of global environment in which we live. So both keep me up at night, both keep me concerned, but I think it's sort of for different reasons. One is can we sustain resources in process? And the other is, can we think uh, innovatively about how to do better next time? Mm. Okay, so threats on all fronts. But let's talk, Matt, about two you know, recent 
kind of opportunities, lessons learned. So COVID-19 and MPOX, very different situations. For COVID-19, we had no vaccine. For MPOX, we did have a vaccine in stockpile, but not enough. So what were some of the, I guess, mistakes or fumbles, lessons learned, early pandemic response? And, and how is the government applying those lessons to be more agile next time? Yeah, and, and I think um, I, I would start by saying, you know, to remind us of sort of what 2020 felt like and what, what is now. I mean, imagine a COVID pandemic without a vaccine. And think about the normal time that it takes to develop a vaccine, which could be a decade or it could be 15 years or Plenty of infections and infectious diseases that are still struggling to develop of a highly protective and safe vaccine. And so, as well as the first lesson learned, uh, is that we, we as a society were able to have more than one, many protective vaccines. We as a global society were able to make, at least in, in a year, 20 billion doses. I mean, these are extraordinary numbers when you think about them. And uh, if if that is the case, now what we have is a, uh, as Hamilton described, it's a well oiled machine. And so I think the challenge that we collectively have then is to say, can we, uh, can we keep that well oiled machine going, not only for the next pandemic, but also for future crisis? Um, one of the things that uh, I, I was very hopeful um, as we as a community of the world really have been responding to COVID, that it would also help us out a lot for how we respond to other outbreaks. And that um, there would be sort of a, uh, a lesson learned and everybody would say, okay, this is how we need to do that. So all vaccines are developed in the world. <laughs> That's sort of a new normal. At Moderna, they are, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, I think what's, what's deeply troubling for me and what we need, to, we need to really try to think about and address is this idea of we did this for COVID, but we're never going to kind of do that again, um, or it can't be done again, or we're not going to put the resources, for whatever reason, um, or, or we just don't want to think about infectious diseases and outbreaks anymore and pretend that they don't happen. Like, there's a lot of, if you will, headwinds against us being kind of continuing to improve and continuing to do better. And I think um, one of the great parts of the MPOX response is that we have been investing in vaccine technology against pox viruses for decades, and we had uh, vaccine revenue available. Um, I then would say, and, and, and diagnostics and everything else, but we had really all the tools that we needed to develop ahead of that, which was great. So I think your expectation should be, well, go, right? And what what we have encountered with MPOX and with a lot of these other outbreaks in different situations is that there is this inertia to get the response started. Mm -hmm. And that inertia is human nature and psychology and it's what was notable with MPOX is, is that our public health community which had been massively strained during the pandemic, were then, you know, so we had MPOX uh, appearing in the United States. Who did we turn to? We turned to our public health professionals at the local, the state, and the national level. And they were like, well, we're burned out. 
That's how we're supposed to go up. I mean, you know, we've been strained beyond strain and we keep kind of coming to it. So it, there was a lot of inertia where we couldn't snap our fingers and address uh, MPOT revenue. Um, but that, that should be the standard. Mm-hmm. That we should figure out all of this ahead of time, and the expectation should be that all these things that ha- have gone fast once should go fast every single time. I do wonder too, because MPOX I think was a unique uh, trajectory in that the the public health infrastructure and the behaviors really are what started to dampen that outbreak. Because at that point there was still a shortage of vaccines in the U.S. and available for distribution. But the community that was largely impacted by it was the same community that has been dealing with HIV. They're very well organized. They have a lot of touch points with their public health officials. And so some of the most successful interventions that we saw was just community engagement within public health to talk to people that were at risk. And those people altered their behavior and you started to see a lessening of the transmission before we even started to roll out vaccines. And so I think that's a really beautiful like narrative of what our public health infrastructure can do when you have this you know robust system that's able to respond. But I think it could have been faster. I think there's a lot of burnout. I do wonder if it was a respiratory pathogen. If it was something else where the community was less galvanized, would the response have been slower? Mm-hmm. And I would add further, it's, it's the public health community, but it's also really individuals too. Like the idea of if you're sick, stay home. Don't expose other people that are sick. And then, so then that's really incumbent on every one of us, right? Don't make the people around you sick. It's collective type responsibility. And whether it's MPOX or COVID or any of these other contagious infectious diseases, there's this core type of individual responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, what can technology enable that? Absolutely. And I think we saw with COVID as an example of um, home COVID testing that, you know, if you felt sick, you could figure it out on your own really quickly that you had COVID and there's limitations with that. Um, when we talk about technology for preparing for the next pandemic, I love that idea of enabling people to make good health decisions and to say, if I'm sick, then I'm not going to be exposed to around other people, whether it's a doctor COVID or not. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, in a sense, we we are all very lucky that the LGBTQ community, which is primarily impacted by MPOX, was so motivated to engage and have those behavior changes. And maybe what lessons can be learned from that sort of early outreach, even before the vaccine is widely available. So I do want to keep going on the challenges and the green pieces, but let's quickly pivot to mRNA. So I hope everyone in this room knows what mRNA is. I'm sure you all do. But what is it really? And Hamilton, maybe you can kind of expand on why it is so cool from a vaccine technology standpoint. What was the old way of making vaccines? Why is mRNA faster, more agile? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think when when we think about what mRNA is, the the, um, innovation that we see in the vaccine space is sort of twofold. It's um, rapid response, which I think we now all understand from COVID. And that comes from being able to really define an antigen that we want your body to make, 
um, we encode for that in mRNA and then deliver that mRNA and your body in your own cells converts that into a protein exposure to your immune system and, and it looks and feels a lot like a natural infection from, from the perspective of your body. So that allows us to get um, antigens or like these immunoepitopes. I hope I'm using the right words for this audience. Uh, that your immune system can recognize and so you mount a response, a protective response that is um, very consistent with the response that you will need to protect yourself from a natural infection. We can do that quickly because the infrastructure that you need for the product development, for the product manufacture is the same across our entire platform for prophylactic vaccines. So the same uh, manufacturing process that we use on flu, that we use on CMV, we use on COVID. The same process that we use on our PCV, we use on our personalized cancer vaccine, we use on COVID. And so there's just this kind of muscle memory that comes with moving that quickly and having all the infrastructure in place for you. There's also this like, new level of, of complex vaccines that we've been able to unlock with mRNA because we are able to have your body naturally produce it. We can do things that protein technologies weren't able to do in the past, make sure that it looks um, like a, a native protein. The old flu uh, vaccines were made in eggs. So many of the seasonal vaccines are still made in eggs. So you end up with this divergence between what that virus might naturally look like out in the world and a version of that virus that can grow in eggs and so then you can turn it into an inactivated vaccine. And so you end up compromising along the way and that results sometimes in less effective vaccines, you know, 30 to 40% effectiveness for seasonal flu vaccines. We don't have that constant kind of um, reduction in activity that you see in mRNAs, and that's because that's how you're able to get COVID vaccines, you know, across manufacturers that have greater than 96% efficacy. So it's it's a combination of how can we move quickly because we know our process, we have the, all of the, um, the the steps in place to move quickly, and then aside from how quickly you can move, what new innovative combination vaccine complex antigens um, can you create that you could not create without mRNA. And I think if you look across the, the vaccine portfolio, we have each of those. Um, and it really unlocks a whole new portfolio of products that you can have for the improvement of global health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the, that's the science fiction dream, which I feel like we're halfway there, is to have kind of a vaccine on demand, so to speak. So you get scary new virus, and then just you can right away scale up that vaccine, which, you know, would be the dream. And, and I think that's a piece of the puzzle there. So, okay, let's get gloomy again. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there is a, a really um, well-defined phenomenon in public health that's called the cycle of panic and neglect. And I don't think that I need to explain it. It's when there's an emergency, everyone panics and throws a bunch of money. And then when the emergency starts to fade, there's a phase of neglect. So it, I guess I'll put it to bat first. Are we entering a phase of neglect? Okay. <laughs> really uh, digging in on that gloom, huh? <laughs> All right. So, I mean, how do you, for lack of a better term, how does the global community uh, inoculate itself against that? What is what is the solution? It's a big question. Maybe it's going to be a long answer, but we have some time. So. Yeah. Okay. I'll try to be first. Um, the, yes. Uh, no, no one wants to talk about COVID. 
Um, and I don't fuck over this my job. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just been involved into a collective trauma and it's really, really painful and it's still going and we want it to end. And so so there's just it's very understandable. I think furthermore, if if we looked at to give you some other examples, when we've had outbreaks in the past of other things, everybody pays attention for a very short period of time and doesn't panic. I had a chance to work um, in the White House and the Obama administration, um, after the H1N1 employment crisis in 2009 and 10, and then after that again, we, we see this this normal psychological pattern, and it's happening again, and it's it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's what we do. Um, how do we fix that? What we're trying to do. The last time around that I was working on the situation at H1N1. He said, well, just, you know, uh, keep telling people how awful the future pandemic is going to be. And, and he said, well, fear is not really motivated. And we were right. And we kept saying, well, if we just keep saying it over and over, it's like the repetitive, it's like, you know, um, the, the classic American in a, you know, foreign country, and just keep saying it loud. So we tried that. That's what I tried. But it doesn't work, right? I can say, we're going to have a future pandemic and it's going to be horrible. Because it's not. It's not going to help us get more prepared to uh, our What we're going to try to do this time is say, can we take all of the goodness of the technology and the good parts of how we responded to the COVID pandemic, can we pivot those to working on uh, global health or infectious diseases or health problems that are out there in front of us every day that people care about? and solve those problems. And while we solve those problems, those are the things that we need to do to get ready for future pandemics. And we can give you a bunch of examples and we can sort of talk through that. Um, an example I bring up a lot is uh, uh, essentially eliminating malaria through vaccination. We don't have a vaccine right now, we have one, and we need others. But imagine uh, a campaign to have safe and effective malaria vaccines uh, vaccinate the world um, and eliminate malaria. That would be awesome. But all of those things that we would do would be the same things that we're going to be doing for a future pandemic as well. So that's that's how I think we get ready if we work on problems that are in front of people right now that people care about and uh, and solve them. I think that's the way that you have to approach it in order to just be sustainable with people's um, attention span. I think it's okay that 90% of people no longer care about pandemics and are thinking about pandemics every day. Because 2020 was a traumatic experience and if we want the world to continue, people need to be able to comfortably go back to their day-to-day lives. But know that the people who need to be thinking about it are thinking about it. And I think what COVID has taught us, which, which maybe we didn't learn from the last avian, is how do we, now that we have these programmable technologies, now that we have individual technologies that can respond to a vast majority of infectious diseases, how can we leverage that capacity to work towards global health, to work towards things that are going to make an improvement in health disparities and equity now, and in doing so, improve our ability to respond to the next pandemic. In the past, it was pandemic preparedness versus global health and everything else. And I think, as you see, the sort of democratization of, of um, mRNA access 
And as, as we kind of distribute manufacturing around the world, and as we think about new ways of getting vaccines to people, we're able to do both at the same time and build efficiencies into the system that didn't exist before. Yeah, I Pre-COVID, and I worked in pandemic preparedness for six years. Pre-COVID, 
So a lot of that means that like my biggest stakeholder was the government. It was collaborators, either their U.S. government or um, European or, or WHO, to say, what is on your mind? What are the biggest threats that you're facing? How could mRNA help make a difference? And so those are conversations that we have been having for years before COVID started. And I think that's what allowed us to have such a, a great relationship with OWS and with our colleagues in the U.S. government, because we, we knew the technology, we knew how to work together, we had the shared mission of mRNA can make a difference if we stay focused and we move efficiently. But for me, COVID is just an example of what we can do when we have really strong private-public partnerships. And when we think about, at least from my perspective in Moderna, what does it mean to be a steward of this really powerful platform of mRNA? And so what are the next things that are keeping that up at night? What are the things that are keeping his counterparts in, in the African Union up at night that we can say, where do we want to deploy mRNA next? And those are not necessarily decisions for Moderna to make on our own. And so we crowdsource a lot of these decisions with stakeholders. Because ultimately, if we develop a malaria vaccine, it needs to be distributed to communities. That's the only way you actually prevent diseases is if people are willing to take the vaccine. And so you have to engage those communities. You have to make sure that you're bringing a product to them that is acceptable and available and affordable. And all of these things when we talk about access, but that begins when you start planning the product, when you start engaging with communities to understand what are their needs. Um, and as we do that in global health space, we do that for pandemic preparedness. I, I love working in the global health community because it's not just one company. It's not pharmaceutical industries separate and distinct from governments. Um, because ultimately what we're trying to do is strengthen public health infrastructure. And that takes a lot of diverse stakeholders to be at the table. If I can make a discussion kind of on RNA, so the reason we have RNA vaccines is not an accident. It's not that there was some random coincidence in nature and then we had these This was um, decades of foundational scientific research, and this is why we have a foundational research scientific But, or and, um, that community was, but it was translated into meaningful life-saving products through a thriving biotech industry. Now, this is both public investment, but also the private sector working together to get there. And just for perspective, though, and I, I hope this resonates with this audience, is that in the early days of Hamilton's intelligence, there was, there was interest, most people said that they were going to work, right? But the vision was to kind of make vaccines like sausage. And when we thought about this, it was like I'd watch that you, 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 you're a software people. <laughs> you're like, you know what you're talking about. I don't. Um, but I was always, if you will, envious when we were looking at vaccine development and saying, I get to iterate on version one a decade at a time. Like, we're never going to get better. If we could iterate and go through that process in days, or weeks, continuing to sort of put more this programmable. That's the, that's the take home for this audience, is that you can, the RNA can tell yourself to do just about whatever you want. And so that gives you, you can make that code in a period of days. And what the part that we're very excited about is not only 
sort of what happened in the COVID pandemic where we saw more than one um, RNA vaccine being super successful is that it's just going to get better. It's just going to get better. Not only the ability to make millions of doses quickly, but this idea of being able to, if you will, print your vaccine um, and have the machines that make that vaccine not necessarily pick up a massive factory that decides to replace itself, but be able to print enough vaccines potentially for your nation and decide to do it. Mm-hmm. And, that in the and, and because, because the process of making that RNA is not, I don't mean to trivialize it, it's not simple, but it's a ton simpler than all the other ways that we make vaccines. I think it's, a, it's because we can characterize it so well. So it's, it's, not, it, it's not simple, but when you have an inactivated virus, it's, it is complex, and there's always this, um, there's this dogma in the vaccine community that the product is the process. Because there is this secret sauce that's happening as you're making the vaccine and you're measuring part of it, but you can't measure all of it in these older technologies. But we can very well characterize what like the, the biophysical chemical properties of mRNA and that allows us to control the process much better and understand what we're doing and then as you have that understanding you scale it down you distribute it um, and so one of the things that, that Matt gets excited about is uh, a project that we started with DARPA is this group familiar with DARPA okay um, very cool Matt you sort there uh, and so we, we have a product, uh, project with DARPA where they asked us um, and others to, to say, can you create a manufacturing facility in a shipping container so that you can take that shipping container that is all-inclusive, drop it in a hot zone, swab somebody, put a sample in, and seven, ten days later have a few hundred doses, a few thousand doses of a vaccine. So you could immediately contain an outbreak, which is really cool for, for DOD and for DARPA. And, um, and those are sort of that, like, the, you know, North Star programs that we like to drive towards. But that's all, that's just sort of one use case for it. And then we start to iterate on that and say, okay, well, if you do that, then what else could you be doing? And how do you further distribute manufacturing? And how do you get people closer to they're to bring the product to them, um, not only for infectious diseases, but for cancer um, and for rare disease, uh, so that you truly have distributed manufacturing, so that you have this autonomy of communities around the world. Uh, and when you start to build towards that, you think, well, what's the regulatory environment I need to put in place? What's the distribution environment that I need to put in place? Um, and it becomes much more localized and community-driven in a way that it's just it's absolutely unheard of for the vaccine space right now because we need these convention-sized manufacturing facilities. But if you think about where we want to go as a community-involved company and or like field, the vaccine field, and then it gives you a roadmap and you sort of work backwards and you say, okay, if this is where I want to be in 15 years, 20 years, then these are the programs I need to put in the portfolio now. These are the conversations I need to be having with regulators and stakeholders so that we can collectively see this vision and like work towards it. But not for two years. That's the I mean the the, the lesson the message for you is, is that I think the work we show that we can make a vaccine, we, society, can make a vaccine in less than a year. And you know, why can't we make it in a hundred days? Or 
30 days or anything else. And the answer is, it's all the time. And the, the, the beauty that we can do now is we know before Operation Warp Speed, everyone in the world said it takes 10 years to make a vaccine. And no one could even believe that it could be done otherwise. And so, if we can believe now that it can be done in a year, and a lot of people still don't believe it. <laughs> so like, it's sort of this, the industry, there's a lot of people in the industry who still say, that was one time, but now we're going to go back to 10 years. And I'm like, not on my watch. Like, that, that is not acceptable for you. It's not acceptable for any person who wants to be protected against an infectious disease. But if we can go from 10 years to a year, why can't we go from a year to 100 days? And then why do we have to wait 10 years for us to globally figure out how to apply that technology? We couldn't wait. We could do it this year. Okay. There's nothing that's blocking us from doing it. Yeah. We, we just have to. That's, that's what we prove. And I'm going to talk about Can you guys hear me? Is this microphone working? Okay, that's the kind of sci-fi talk I really do like. But I am glad that my microphone is working because next we're going to dive into pandemic origins. As probably many people in this room have seen, the debate about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic is back in the headlines, back on Capitol Hill. And so much has been made of the fact that we absolutely must understand what caused this pandemic to prevent the next one. And this is a panel about pandemic preparedness. So I would love to put to both of you, you know, is that true? Do we need to get to the bottom of this to prevent the next pandemic? So um, we need to do, regardless of where COVID came from, we need to, whatever, whatever that scenario was, um, we need to say, could that scenario happen in the future? And the answer is yes. If so, then we need to do really well at any potential cause of a future infectious disease itself. Maybe specific. Um, if, uh, if someone is doing life-saving research in a laboratory and they're working with a pathogen, with a virus that's really contagious, we should do everything we can to protect them. Just like healthcare workers. I mean, healthcare workers are putting themselves on the line when they're taking care of us. You know, we should be doing everything we can to protect them, whether it's the air in the room or the mask or all of that stuff. It's the same thing in a laboratory. We should protect that individual lab worker that's putting their lives on the line to learn, to develop, so that we are, that, that life-saving research. We should protect that individual. We should protect that laboratory. We should protect the surrounding community. So that they're never exposed to a accidental release or a lab leak or whatever else it is. And technology can allow us to do so. And uh, I mean, I'm actually pretty, I'm proud of um, our efforts in the United States that have really focused on both the regulations and the technology that we call biosafety. Um, I think we do a really good job of that. Um, and we're going to do even better. And we're going to take all of that technology that we can use to keep people protected. And continue to do so. Um, so yes. The other part of this is that a lot of uh, infections uh, come from an animal source. We call it zoonotic spore. Um, will that keep happening in the future? It will. Why will it keep happening? Because we live in such a dynamic world 
of all of the different factors that are making, uh, that are, that are the changes that we see all around us. One of those is that we're bringing humans and animals in more close proximity than we ever have before at a more massive scale. So we do say, what if there is a disease in animals and could that change somehow and get into humans? So the gloomy answer is absolutely it could. And the gloomy answer is we're going to continue to have to deal with that. And we're going to see this a lot. The glass half full, that's um, is uh, there's a lot that we can do about that. We can understand what's in animals. We can say uh, if it does go into humans, we can make sure that we know that that's happening. Um, the really accurate uh, immediate diagnostics like the home COVID test, that can help us. That can help us quite a bit. Imagine we're doing that for people that work with animals like poultry workers, for example. So we can test and see if that if we're starting to see them become sick, and then we can stop it. We can treat it. We can vaccinate against it. Um, but point is, we need to vote. At least from, from the response side, whether it be for vaccines or therapeutics, the origin, I think, is important to make sure we know that we're monitoring the right places. So if we're talking about, like, if I'm engaging stakeholders to say, what are the risks? that we're mapping all of those potential risks. And so you're mapping things that are currently biosafety level three, four, and then you're also you know, running uh, surveillance studies in in live poultry and kind of like in farm animals so where you have those close intersections to, to look for those spillover events. You're monitoring people when they have clinical symptoms and they report to a hospital with something that we can't identify. Um, but the way that we deal with that on the, on the pharmaceutical response side is there are spillover events all the time. Most of the time it will appear as a common cold or you're asymptomatic and you'll never know that you have this um, activity occur. So we can't monitor for everything, but what are the big threats that we need to be monitoring for? And then how do we put action plans in place so that we can respond? And so the way that we've done that is you know, the WHO and, and our NIH have kind of created these kind of categories of threats for emerging infectious diseases and neglected uh, infectious diseases to say, well, if we know how to create a COVID vaccine, if we know how to create a flu vaccine, Zika, Ebola, uh, Marburg, Crimean Congo, all of these things that cause kind of sporadic outbreaks that you might detect in somebody in a hospital somewhere, then we can probably move faster towards to respond to something that looks like that in the future. And so that kind of gets back to what, what is disease X. It's, it's not one of the priority pathogens that we talk about and that we're working towards, but it's saying, how do we map this space so that regardless of the origin of where this comes from, we know clinical presentation, we know treatment, we know how to respond quickly with first therapeutics and first kind of behavioral changes and PPE and therapeutics and then vaccines, and you have a toolbox available to you. Um, Hamilton said the word fast and quickly, and that's that's the, the take home from this whole lesson is no matter where uh, where that future infection comes from, we have to be fast. It's, it's all about speed. Um, if you can stop it at two cases, it's much better than 200. That's better than 200,000. That's better than two million a day. Um, but it's that early intervention where we have to be so fast. Mm -hmm. We have to be super, super fast. And uh, 
the future state that we imagine is not only does the technology allow us to be fast, but we as human beings figure out how we can work together so that we can what would you like to know the answer of what caused the pandemic in an ideal world? I don't think it matters to me. Honestly, yeah, I think, I don't think it would have changed our response. I don't think, and that's where it's just, at this point, it's like, what is, where's the efficiency where I put my resources? I wouldn't have done anything differently. Uh, I think it, our response it didn't, it didn't matter, and I don't think it changes the way that we move forward with future preparedness efforts, because I think we're already working towards one health surveillance and, and proper biosafety. In my brain's like, make sure pandemics are out again. <laughs> so let's stay on this, because we do live in a world of uh, increasing geopolitical tension. There's tension with China, there's a war in Ukraine, and something that's crucial for the work that both of you do is standing up global clinical trials. One of the paradoxes of vaccine is you can do a lot of research in the laboratory, but you really only know if it works when you go to that outbreak situation and you stand up these trials, and that's when you really can understand how well your vaccine is working. So that can often be difficult to do. During COVID-19, most of the, you know, the outbreak is global. It was everywhere. But that's not typical. In an ideal world, you would want to go to a country, maybe a different country, and stand up a clinical trial, and that can often be complex and difficult to deal with, but it seems to be, I think you would agree, crucial to nipping those things in the bud, understanding if your vaccine works. So how do you do that in this era of increasing geopolitical tension? I'm going to actually start with like the sci-fi, thinking, you know, ideally you're going to these outbreak settings. Ideally, we have therapeutics and vaccines that are available that don't require an outbreak for use. And that's sort of a limitation of the way that we have, we're, we're highly regulated environment. And unfortunately, the way that we have to progress through that is in our current system, you have to demonstrate efficacy. People have to get sick and you have to be able to show that you're helping some people not get sick in order for your product to get approved so that you can distribute the product and, and save other lives. COVID, we were able to run studies, at least Moderna, we ran um, studies in the U.S. because the, the virus was everywhere and we were able to show efficacy in the U.S. There are outbreaks that are occurring that are in you know, remote communities, like Ebola outbreaks that continue to have these events, whether it be Ebola Zaire or Ebola Sudan, Marburg outbreaks that are happening. And unfortunately, you're, we're still in an environment where you have to respond to the outbreak under a protocol working with governments to make sure that you can get your product deployed. So I, what I'd like to be able to see is leverage programmable technologies where you have this massive aggregate data set that you're creating across dozens of prophylactic vaccines and say, look, we know the safety, we know the tolerability, we know there's a presumption of efficacy because we've been testing this in, in preclinical models, we know it, it can prevent infection and disease. So can you get to a world where you've shifted the risk benefit so that we can be deploying vaccines at a larger scale, the same way that we sort of do with, with um, pandemic flu, where you're able to leverage kind of dossier approach to move faster? Because ultimately, we want to we want to be preventing those outbreaks from happening. We don't want to be responsible for responding quickly. 
And then it's sort of in the near term, as we're building towards that sci-fi, but I think it's reality space. It's about doing work now, engaging those governments, getting your data in front of them so that they are comfortable with your technology, with your product. So when you do need to respond, they're not doing all of that from start. And I think that's how you get to the 100 days. Interesting. No, I really want to stay there because I think that is what, what you're hitting on is something that obviously throughout this pandemic, the FDA debated with the rollout of the tweaked or updated booster shot. Do you need efficacy data? And I'm curious, I mean, maybe the people in this room have opinions about whether or not people would accept a vaccine that does not have inhuman efficacy data. I certainly think that there's an argument to be made for it, but there's a lot of folks at FDA, some folks on the advisory committee specifically, who would have a fit, and maybe the public as well. Yeah. I think you have to be, you have to be patient with this, right? Like, so, of course, you would like to be able to do all of this given that year or three years. But if you if you know that that's where you want to go, it's really about what are the data sets you need to generate now that you can put before the FDA or other health authorities that start to give them insight into that um, translatability across a platform or across you know, mRNA as a whole. Because you can't expect an a entity like the FDA where they're responsible for our health and safety to compromise. So that's not at all what we're asking to do, but we're having conversations that are saying, okay, well, what, as we build these data sets, what would you like to see? What are the open questions that you have so we can start to fill in those gaps so when it matters, we can move faster? Yeah, and I would add the, um, the, I kind of heard quality and no compromise there, and I do want to sort of drive home that point in terms of, and again, one of our lessons from Operation Works is really at day one. Is that uh, we were going to accelerate vaccine product development, but we would never compromise, cut corners, or say, okay, well, this will be approved at some type of lower standard than a typical vaccine would be approved. Didn't happen. And, and the, uh, and that sort of adhering to the highest standard of review, of evidence, of safety, um, that's the, in my opinion, has never been compromised in any of these vaccine development programs. And I really do think I give my colleagues at the FDA credit on a daily basis for having a very difficult job, but also really moving the world standard in terms of what people, what a quality product should look like. And quality is safe to the best of our knowledge that we can figure out is safe. To a manufactured quality, the highest standard of making sure that I mean, we're talking about sci-fi, like manufacturing in a box and all this other stuff in this room. And that product that is produced will always be of the highest quality without compromise, full stop. And anything in your federal funds that I'm anywhere near is, is going to maintain that type of standard. Um, so, so it's not compromising those things. And it's also, to the best of our ability, understanding if the product works and how well it works. And that, Last part, that's not an easy thing um, to necessarily figure out. But what I will say, for example, with Operation Warp Speed, a 30,000 volunteer clinical trial is a massive trial. And the amount of information that was gathered from that was extraordinary. Um, and it was all predicated on 30,000 people saying, I will volunteer. Remember, we didn't know. 
that there's something really special and magical for someone that volunteers for a clinical trial. And to make the point for the global clinical trials that we're talking about, um, there's a universal standard that we as the United States government insist on with any type of involvement that if someone is going to volunteer for a clinical trial, that they adhere to all of the highest ethical principles, they sign up, they have to understand the risk. Um, that's been accepted pretty much as a universal standard as well. But this idea of volunteers knowing as much as we can about that product, and then as we go through, there's all of these things that happen even after the clinical trial, even after a product is approved, that I feel like we as a global community are actually getting a lot better. There's a lot of data and technology that's allowing us to understand how long does that vaccine protect you? Does that vaccine protect you if you're 80 years old? What about if you're 98 years old? What about if you have your immune system is suppressed? There's, there's a lot of complexity there, but data and technology are allowing us to know that. And what I'll end with on this comment, kind of so foxy, sorry, but the, um, one of the other things I really like about our system is that we are transparent in this information. And I use the example you alluded to the advisory committee. Uh, there's a vaccine advisory committee to the Food and Drug Administration. And before they approve a vaccine, they hold a public hearing. And before the pandemic, no one watched their public hearing. <laughs> um, during the pandemic, we would have 50,000 people and every, every major news company oh, yeah. covering every single word that was said. It was public. But, and the companies had to present their latest greatest data and share that publicly. That's a really good thing that we have in that system. That transparency, I really think the United States leads the world with that. And it's something that we, you know, at, at the White House insist on, that we're going to be public, we're going to be transparent, we're going to have researchers publish their data so all the world can see it. It's a really good thing. It means that we're going to debate and deliberate and stuff like that. That's part of being a free society. But it's something I'm really proud of, and it's something that we will continue to do. As we talk about all this great science fiction technology that we're going to make a reality, um, we're also going to let everyone know what we're doing. Okay, well, let's spend the last few minutes of this talking more about science fiction, because I think, and it's actually not science fiction, it's closer than that, I think. But Hamilton, you know, Moderna is obviously working on vaccine technology. We have seen that this can be done faster than ever before. So what diseases exist today in the world that you think in five to ten years will be vaccine preventable and how? Can you kind of elaborate on that? And I think we're in a great, uh, an age with, with mRNA that we really unlock this new level of vaccine development and also therapeutics too. We can deliver monoclonal antibodies through mRNA as well. So they're therapeutics as well. Uh, it's really a question of what, what can't we do? So the low hanging fruit, which what we've been able to continue to move quickly on is respiratory infection. So COVID was our first product. Um, we've shown that, that our technology also works against RSV. Um, we have seasonal flu programs that are also ready for pandemic flus. And so those are the things that I think most people will engage with. One of the interesting things about our technology is, is we're going after latent viruses in a way that people couldn't do that before. 
So there's a program that we've had running for six or seven years now um, targeting CMV. And it's been difficult to create vaccines against it. Those vaccines that have gone into late-stage development haven't really shown great efficacy. But with our mRNA technology, we could we can encode using multiple mRNAs for a protein that is a pentamer. So your body creates five different proteins and then they know what they're doing and they self-assemble to create this immunoepitope that could never have been created with a different technology. Can't do that with protein technology. So if you think about the ability to apply that level of this vaccine engineering, we can do things that you know, have not been possible before. Looking at malaria, targeting different stages of the life cycle, so you're not making a compromise on do you want to hit blood or liver. You can just put all of them together. Um, targeting HIV in new ways that train your immune system to make the right kind of antibodies is something that you couldn't do because the technology before was so slow that they couldn't adapt the vaccine. But what we can do is, is learn from these clinical studies as they're running, redesign a new vaccine so that when you're ready for a boost, we know exactly the boost that you need based on the evolution of your own HIV, which is significantly more than kind of global flu. So those complex issues, I think we're really in this like new age that we're going to be able to, to make it done in, in almost everything. Yeah, so I heard RSV, CMV, maybe HIV, that would be huge. Obviously, folks have been working on that for decades. Um, these are all malaria. These are all like pathogenic viruses, or malaria is not a virus, but they're all, you know, infectious diseases. Yes. I, I'm curious, can you expand on it? This is something I actually don't understand, even after having covered mRNA and, and technology for, for the past at least three years. mRNA was initially designed to prevent cancer. That was the initial research intent. It still hasn't really happened. So can it happen? And why Why was that more challenging, actually, than standing it up for all these infectious diseases? Yeah, so you're, you're hearing my bias because I work in infectious disease. That's always the part that I really love. Uh, but we, we do have, we did start um, as, like, really thinking about how to deploy mRNA for oncology. Um, we have beautiful data that came out last year on our personalized cancer vaccine um, program. So we're starting to see that mRNA works in oncology. It works in rare disease, and we released some data last summer that shows um, how you can deliver proteins to people that are kind of lacking um, and recover um, metabolic responses. Uh, and you can think about how are you delivering those proteins and where are they going in the body um, so you can inhale them, you can infect them, you can apply really, it's incredible to see the breadth of where mRNA can work. And I think last year, two years ago, we started to move into genomics as well. So the biggest portfolio at Moderna continues to be prophylactic vaccines because that's where we started and we developed and invested heavily in our platform to enable that type of product. But we have seven different modalities. And every time we unlock a little piece of the scientific puzzle in one, then we can apply that to a different modality and start running. Um, and so we're able to sort of learn from and build upon all of these different products that are in the portfolio to really accelerate the growth. And so I think what you've seen thus far in the prophylactic vaccine space, you're going to start to see in oncology, you're going to see it in personalized cancer, you're going to see it in rare disease, because once you de-risk it, and you know that the concept works, we can do it very quickly. So, super exciting. Um, but I think I think it's helpful to think about 
uh, like one vaccine scale to solve a global problem and then personalize vaccine. And both are possible, both are amazing, but let's start with the big scale stuff first and, and going way beyond our But So the world with lots of different types of vaccines made 20 billion plus doses a year of COVID vaccines. And, and it was like, oh, we're just getting started. There's no reason 20 billion is an upper limit. You can double it or triple it. If you can make that many doses of vaccine, then why aren't we, there's lots of vaccine-preventable diseases right now that are out there that basically we have to just organize ourselves as a global society to cover for those types of things. I make a point a lot that um, hepatitis B virus is the leading cause of liver cancer worldwide. You get the infection and then it messes up your cells and then those cells can end up living. So there's a, there's a very effective vaccine that's been around for a very long time. Hard to give them just to do um, But that, among other examples, you could, have, you could eliminate the leading cause of liver cancer if you could vaccinate all at risk populations with hepatitis B. There's a long list of those types of infections that we just have to, we just have to get organized there. RNA for some of those solutions, but also just even the more traditional vaccines. You have to figure out how to do that as a global society. And I think we should. If we can do that, we will be better prepared for the pandemic. That was the first point I made. Um, the other part, though, that's super exciting, this idea of personalized vaccines. So the, the imagine is your particular type of cancer that you could get a vaccine that's special for the type of cancer that you have and you prevent it from first. Think about that. Think about how amazing that would be. Um, and that's probably answer your question. You can't give one vaccine to prevent all lung cancer. I think what we've discovered is, is that you probably have to be very specific for the type of cancer that that person has. But the other thing we're seeing in terms of cancer therapy is that we've made tremendous progress in, if you will, revving up the immune system to target that specific cancer you have. So imagine that we rev up the immune system to kill the cancer that you have right now, and we also give the vaccine so that that cancer never comes back again. You know? So, but you say, well, Matt, you're, you're saying you're going to make, Moderna's going to make a, vac a cancer vaccine for one person? Mm -hmm. It's super hard, right? You know, because you need big factories and all that other stuff. That's why we like the distributed manufacturing thing so well. If you can, if you can make it in a box and keep it in this room, then you can have that thing at a hospital. And then it can make, you know, on Monday it can make cancer vaccine for 10 patients and then Tuesday it can make something else. It enables that whole version that again, the, the personalized cancer vaccine, people are like, you're insane. This is, we'll never be able to create a system that it's going to be able to make that. That's what we do. I don't think I don't think we're fine. Okay, well, you all, you heard it here first. Vaccines on demand. <laughs> it's coming. It's probably not going to prevent the next pandemic, but it could certainly help respond to it quickly. So thank you very much to both of my panelists, and thank you to Jenna at Moderna for organizing and shepherding us around. Um, thank you all for coming and for listening.
Um, we will be around for a few minutes. I'll be around for a few minutes yeah. afterwards if anyone has any questions. And uh, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you all so much. Yeah.